I just called this woman every day for three months. And finally, just to get me off her back, she said, come meet me and don't call me anymore. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. If you come back, welcome. We talk about the experience of being an artist in New York City. The voice you heard up front with comedian Chris Griggs, a longtime friend of No Name. We first met him when he was part of an improv troupe called All Things Walter, and he's gone on to do tons of things in improv and stand-up world. He teaches as well. Interesting guy, good guy, and we, we'll get to the conversation with him in a little bit. I mentioned if you've been listening for a long time, uh, we want to thank you for a long time. We've been doing it a little over a year. On a serious tip, if you have been listening, uh, if you've listened at all, if you've listened more than once, uh, we just thank you for doing that. I think all the guests have been great and have interesting stories to tell, you know. But, you know, for, for me, this has been a learning process. Yes, I've been on mics for over three decades, and but I've never done a podcast before. I never did radio and never did podcasts and a guest on a few podcasts. You know, when, when we first began, a very well-known comic who's a friend of ours had urged me to begin the shows with something, you know, do a little time up front, as it were. You know, if you listen to the first few we did, uh, the first couple we did with Charles McBee and Michelle Carlo, some of the early ones, I mean, I just basically said hello and launched into the sponsor and, and the conversation. You know, I talk a little bit more up front now, obviously, like I'm doing at this moment. But it is an odd thing to do if you've never done this sort of thing before. And it occurred to me, it's kind of challenging because there's no... Like, if you see a comic at Gotham Comedy Club or The Cellar or whatever, you're seeing someone who has landed there, unless you're seeing a, a bringer show or, you know, a, a student showcase or something, you're seeing somebody who's taken a, a path to get to that point. You're seeing somebody who's done endless open mics, probably done some, some time on the road and various showcases and, you know, opening for people and emceeing and stuff before they come to you as a scheduled headliner or, you know one of the featured comics, and open mics brutal. Comedy open mics are, are often truly brutal. I mean, they're important, they're vital, it's necessary for getting anywhere, but they can be brutal. I, you, I, I was supporting a, a young friend of No Names uh, earlier this year, uh, so he was starting to play with doing stand-up, uh, <laughs> at my first open mic in like two decades, and it was a, a stark reminder of why I don't miss those, you know, a room full of like 30 mostly 25-year-old straight white males doing dick jokes that didn't have actual punchlines, and it, it's kind of brutal, and I was thinking, you know, there's no, there are no open mics for hosting podcasts. There's no way you can do this other than to do it. This is a pretty unique animal. And so for those of you who have been listening, I really appreciate that you've come back and I hope I'm getting better. I hope you're enjoying the shows, you know, and like I say, the guests have been fine and I'm comfortable with the conversation, but the opening part or whatever, it took me a while to get comfortable with it. I was thinking if there was an open mic for this sort of thing, how god awful would that be? All right, next coming up to the mic is Todd Matthews. Todd 
Uh, let's hear your podcast. Hello, I'm Todd Matthews, and welcome again to Dick Talk. That's a podcast where we talk about my dick. All things Todd Matthews dick. I want to thank you guys for tuning in today. Our guest a little bit later on, my ex-girlfriend, will be here to talk about my dick. My ex-girlfriend, Darla, will talk about my little rascal. And we are, of course, sponsored by my dick. But enough about my dick. Let's talk about my dick. Well, oh, I'm being given the light. So uh, until next time, that, that's it for me and my dick. I'll see you next time on Dick Talk. Oh, man. I believe I used the word dick more in the last two minutes than I have ever on stage in 30 years. But anyway, I want to thank all of you who've been along for the ride and, and hang in there with, with me as I learn this or whatever. Um, I, I try to avoid dick jokes without punchlines. Anyway, enough babble, 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 babble. We're, we're going to get to the good conversation we had with Chris Griggs in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. And you know what that means? Say it with me. Get away to Green Bay. Escape to Green Bay. That's right, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast at a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events, and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go. Get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Get away to Green Bay. Man, it's good to see you. How you doing, guy? I'm all right. You know, um, family stuff aside, I think I told you about all that, right? My yeah, well, we didn't go into detail, yeah. but I did want to, I think this is the first time I've seen you since I wanted to offer my condolences. Thank man. you. Yeah, I'm hanging in there, doing all right. I did my first, uh, like I'd kind of been, uh, not, not canceling shows, but just kind of doing the ones that didn't require a lot, like a five-minute spot here, MC there. And then I did, uh, I was in uh, Maryland. And I had to do 45, so it was a good, it was a good barometer, and it mm. went well. Okay, good. And it good, was the best yeah. kind of going well because everybody before me bombed. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is like legit doing well, 45, because y'all hated everybody. <laughs> but they liked you. They liked me, yeah. Right, fuck everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you know, stand-ups are always like, I'll turn it around. 
And then when you don't, you get mad at the audience. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, well, all right. So you're not originally, why, why would I even put it like that? I know you were not originally from New York. Well, how did you know that, Eric? I don't understand. <laughs> I'm not originally from New York. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, but yeah, through the years, I, I, it's I become more Tennessee. of an Austin, Texas exactly. draw. Yep. So a real Memphis accent is more kind of, hey, I like ice, mommy. But this one has become more of an Austin, Texas thing, even though I've never really been to Austin very much. <laughs> is there a, a great variety of accents in, in uh, Tennessee just in general? Yeah, a lot of it's like how hard you beat the vowels and things. I mean, Tennessee is kind of in between. But if you, the more you get kind of Alabama and Mississippi, it gets more, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, North Carolina is more like, hey, everyone. And there's different ones. It's weird. I guess I, I don't really do accents, but I do know a lot of different southern ones. And then Austin, Texas is more like what I have, which is kind of Matthew McConaughey, which is more... <laughs> Well, that'll be you know, all right. You, you, I, I do kind of hear that, yeah. <laughs> I never tried, y'all. I tried to get rid of my accent for a long time in my 20s, uh, just for acting purposes. Mm-hmm. And then it's crazy. Now, the way the world's changed, it really doesn't matter. Your accent can be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> and I don't know why I cared. Sean Connery kept the same accent his entire career and played all over the place. <laughs> you know, true. He's like, I'm a Russian sea commander. <laughs> I'm a Spanish peacock in Highlander. It didn't matter. I'm a tough Bronx cop in Untouchables. <laughs> and everyone was just cool. Let's just roll this Sean Connery. Yeah, exactly. Let's exactly. not get into the weeds. Let's just sign him up. It must be nice to have that screen presence where they're like, we don't give a fuck how you talk. You should talk. I did. I used to, man, I, I've been doing stand-up for like 16 years. I remember my first or second year of stand-up, I had this thing where I was sort of, uh, I bet if they ever did Deliverance 2 and Sean Connery audition, he'd be like, you've got a pretty mouth. I'm, uh, I'm from Mississippi. And everyone would just go, just keep the cameras going, man. It's Sean Connery. Nobody cares. I'd go to see Who that wouldn't? film. I, Sean Connery and Deliverance 2? That's money well spent. Less so right now, but yes. That's <laughs> well, it. yeah, yeah. Did you like growing up in Memphis? I love Memphis. Um, I, you know, it's like a lot of things. Like, there's this cool line I like. I think it's Kevin Bacon and Alec Baldwin, and he's outside the church, and Alec Baldwin is the best man, and Kevin Bacon asks him, hey, am I going to be happy? Well, Alec Baldwin goes, you'll be happy. You just won't know you're happy. <laughs> and I think that's like, I was very happy growing up in Memphis. I didn't always know I was happy growing up in Memphis, but I love it. And I love for any reason to go back. It's a great visit. I'm, I'm always trying to get my friends in New York to go because mm. I'm like, it's a great three or four days. What are you talking about? You can go to the Lorraine Hotel, uh, Civil Rights Museum. You go to, there's amazing blues uh, clubs there. And they're just playing for the love of the game. It's not right, like, right. so they're like for legit blues players that are just amazing you can go to graceland and get a little elvis going <laughs> some of the best barbecue in the world you got uh, boats and things on the river that you can go out on mud island on so but i do <laughs> i do sometimes i've told my friends before and i hope memphis doesn't hate me for telling people this but sometimes <laughs> i'll say go to memphis spend about four or five days and then leave before you get sad <laughs> so the, it's a blues it's a blues town for a reason <laughs> I have not done a lot of traveling, but the first time I went to the Midwest a few years ago, I went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Long story, not an interesting one. But I will say that, you know, I was kind of fascinated because, you know, you always hear, you know, people are supposed to be so nice or whatever. And what I found is, is and, and I loved going to Milwaukee enough that I went back there, but I kind of went there the the same way you said about going to Memphis, you know, four or five days. And I'm like, this is great. Because I don't live here. Sure. Had enough city 
that I didn't feel out of place, but it was clearly not New York City because you could see the sky. And in fairness to both everywhere, there's a lot of places that I wouldn't even want to be there four or five days. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think there's a lot of towns. As long as a town has a personality, I like to be there. It's it's great to go visit for a few days, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And just get into a different head. You know, yeah. for a few days. Yeah, like I could, I, I'd be happy to go to Cleveland, Ohio, or I, actually, what am I saying? I've been to Cleveland, Ohio, but like, because it has a personality, you know, or uh, Portland, Oregon has a personality, New Orleans has a personality, mm, and then then you can decide if that personality extends long term for you. I think the nice thing about New York City is just that you can explore a lot of different personalities. Like you could spend a month <laughs> doing one thing, and you could go and do something else, and. Like my mother, she would get nervous about me living in Manhattan. And I go, don't worry about if I'm in Manhattan. Worry about if I'm in downtown Memphis on a Friday night. <laughs> That's where you have to worry about me. You, and whatever you like, you can kind of explore it and do that. So if you like comedy, it's a great comedy scene. But then if you mm-hmm. like botany, you could go somewhere and find some super botanists doing it at a super cool level. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Everyone's smart. I think New York gets a bad rap for not being friendly. It's just that they're... You know, they don't suffer fools and they've got a lot going on. But I find New Yorkers to be, for the most part, very helpful and friendly, minus the people that wish you harm. But other than that, <laughs> often uh, take, the same take people. those people. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> often, but I mean, you know, it's funny when you first go to New York, it makes no sense to you why people are talking to themselves. And then, yeah, I, I get it. I talk to myself now. I'm not full on yet, but I definitely am walking around going, come on, Chris, what are you doing, man? Why are you walking? <laughs> You're better than this. Come on, Chris. The inner monologue comes out more easily in New York City. It does. You always, I mean, half the time you feel like you're in a scene in a movie anyway. You're walking around Times Square or you're you're walking around Or you're walking around where scenes in movies were shot. Or they were shot, exactly. The stuff I love about seeing old films that were shot in New York is remembering, like, if the scene is not a super lingering one, you know, play the game of, what did that street used to be? So you like Memphis. Can I ask you, siblings, parents, what's the situation? Uh, Well, the the nice thing, too, about, I think, hold on, I might sneeze. I might. (sighs) I did. Bless you. Bless me. Bless my heart. I believe you were the first uh, guest to ever sneeze. So, uh, First time sneezer, long time listener. There you go. There you go. So the nice thing, I think, you know, I, I was born in Memphis. I grew up in a place called Tipton County which is outside of Memphis, but close. It's not very far out. I grew up in the uh, Brighton-Munford area, and Millington is right next to that. That's where Justin Timberlake grew up at, So, but we never hung out. So oh, anywho, okay. but I liked it. as I grew up, that guy. Yeah. Well, what did he do for anybody yeah, except really. everything? But yeah, it was kind of a small town and a farm. Was it a farm? Uh, it's, it's a long Jerry Springer story, but basically my... <laughs> parents got divorced when I think I have a twin sister who's passed away recently. Mm-hmm. They were divorced. I think we were around four. My dad tried to raise us for a while with my grandparents, but they passed away kind of back to back. And then his sister, my aunt, had had a miscarriage. So she wanted to raise us. So she raised us with my uncle and her right around Brighton, Tennessee. It was called Atoka, Tennessee. I dated the mayor's daughter for a while. So I thought I was kind of hot in high school. <laughs> But uh, it was a small town. Yeah, we liked it. You know, it was, again, it's one of those things that 
I think growing up, being young, my biggest motivation was I, I want something different than this. I, I think a lot of my character values, I really appreciate that I got from that place. But I knew that I wanted to do things that, you know, people didn't understand. You know, like I liked comic books and my aunt and uncle never understood that. And I didn't always mm-hmm. want to go to church all the time. And they didn't understand that. You came and from big, big time church going people? Huge, huge. Well, my dad passed away when we were 11. But my aunt and uncle were huge church people. We went to Pentecostal church, like for real, mm. Robert mm. Duvall, apostle style, uh, uh, tongues, tongues, the whole thing, slain in the spirit. Then I went to a Southern Baptist college in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, Your choice or family choice? Uh, this one was my choice. I think at the time I was uh, held down by fear. I was mm. 18 years old. I was too afraid. I th- and I do think it's a bit of a small town thing. Like, you know, you're afraid to just go out into the world but uh, Jackson was 45 minutes from where my aunt and uncle were. So it was like far enough away to be away. And I also had a scholarship there. So uh-huh. I got a scholarship for music and the emphasis was on voice. And at the time I was looking at maybe a baseball scholarship too, but ultimately their team was so good uh-huh. that I had this epiphany that you might play your senior year. So it just seemed silly. And then I eventually uh, got on the uh, tennis team. I wound up being a walk-on on the tennis team. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Southern Baptist, for me, was almost like freedom compared to Pentecostal because it was strict, but nothing like that. Then I sort of eventually decided that organized religion was not going to be my my thing. I believe in something. It just <laughs> wouldn't be what, it wouldn't be boxed in the way I think that they want it to be. When did you first have any thoughts about performing or the arts or anything, singing? Well, I was always kind of a class clown. I think I got voted funniest in high school and funniest in college, but I had no courage to perform and I had no I had no thought about it. It wasn't it wasn't really on my radar to ever be a performer because I just didn't have the guts to do it. I wasn't even in the acting department in college. I didn't do theater. The only theater I did was I sang in church and I was a pretty good singer. But that was even motivated, weirdly enough, by my sister. It was just a dumb thing. We were 13 years old and they had this thing called teen talent. And Mm -hmm. they had a big competition, so my sister was in it, so I wanted to be in it. I think she got second place, Mm -hmm. and I got last. Now, why they showed me the cards so that I would know that I got last, (laughs) I have no idea. But like out of, of, I don't know, like let's say 30, whatever, how many people were in this thing, I got dead last. I did a whole rocky vocal singing montage. I used to have these speakers, a little small, Barry Manilow, uh, Neil Diamond, Kenny Rogers, and I was just like belting it out. And it was like, oh, man, I was going to win. And then the <laughs> next year I got third. And then the next year I won and I got to go to the Grand Ole Opry and sing at the Grand Ole Opry, oh, damn. which was pretty cool. So I loved singing, but I was not, I knew I wasn't good enough to be a professional singer, although I was pretty good. Even in New York now, I'm a pretty good singer. But when you're comparing it to New York singers, like legit Broadway singers, I'm not. But acting and stuff, I didn't have the courage for. I just had a flash. Did you record and put out some music or a song or something? I've done uh, funny songs. They're all comic-based. So, like, I did a music video. It's me as a roommate of Wolverine. And I'm like, Wolverine, man, why are you, what's wrong with you, man? Come on, remember, why are you so bummed out? Bring the girls over. Remember all that mutant tale? And then it breaks into this whole song, like a Broadway ballad. I love you, Wolverine. I know you're not so mean. And I do this whole like torch ballad about how much I'm in love with Wolverine. And that was fun. And then I was in the New York Solo Com Festival before the pandemic. I played a character where I dressed as a woman called Christy Cash. No relation. 
<laughs> and uh, I would sing girl power songs. It was all stuff like, uh, are you ready for the lady to save the day? Are you ready for the lady to show the way? Your mind's also- Anyway, but the end of it was like, are you ready for the lady to take control? So it's all this like girl power stuff. And yeah, I've done it. I wish I could play an instrument. If I could play an instrument, I would just be doing my own thing. But it's hard to find somebody that you've got the right chemistry with to find your own tenacious D, so to speak. <laughs> and also, I love doing a musical improv. I don't get to do it very much because you kind of kind of pick your battles. But I do this one show maybe once every few months. There used to be a team, well, there is a team called Centralia. You know Centralia, Matt Higgins and those guys. 20 years ago, when I was going through Second City, they were uh, at least three of my teachers. So I did this show called The Centralia Experiment, which was me doing an improv cover band version of Centralia Uh, with uh other people. And I liked it. And then after the pandemic, I turned it into this show called The Awakening, which is Centralia style, but it's about dreams. And I have guest stars who play the Sandman, Master of Dreams. And we have music in that. So you're improvising, but like them, sometimes you break out in the song. And I've got a show coming up, and I think in three weeks, and I have a bass player and piano player. And so that's a lot of fun. So I get this thing sometimes. Oh, yeah, that's very cool. I would imagine particularly challenging to improv music with multiple musicians. The best ones I find are the ones that block it more so that you can follow the blocking as opposed to when they play. If the, if the playing's super elaborate, you can get lost in their leading. Because really, the best musicians in improv follow. Mm-hmm. And then when they lead, it's usually more when they initially start playing because they kind of see this thing, maybe. They're heightening right. or clarifying something cool. The best ones, as soon as they start playing, you're like, ah. I know why you picked that style. I know why you're doing that. And then you can kind of bounce off of it. But then as you sing, it's easier, at least for me, if they block it out a little bit. Not me following them, but them following me. It's a matter of you you listening to the people you're working with. And if you're really paying attention and working together, you know when when somebody in the crew has that moment, like, oh, okay, you got something, I'll follow you. Yeah. So in college... You discovered that you're not going to be a professional singer and you're not going to be a professional baseball player. Yeah. And you're not. And I wasn't good enough to be a professional tennis player either because I started too late. I didn't know I was good at it. I just wound up because everything I've ever done, including comedy, I've had to just work at it. My talent was always I have a great eye, but you have to work towards your eye. Mm -hmm. And that takes time. But. Tennis is the only thing that I just had some roommates on the college team and we would play. And I was like, wow, wait, I've never actually just been good at something. And that was the one thing I was naturally good at. Tennis wasn't a big thing when I was growing up because, I mean, we had a tennis court, but it was right next to the rodeo. So everybody would get drunk and shoot the lights out. It it was hard to play at night. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I knew I wasn't good at those things. And then ironically, I was dating a girl who was a prodigy piano player and a singer. And she could just play the piano, but she couldn't read music. She was just one of those people. And she had a record deal. And she was fearless. And I was completely fearful. Cut to a long time later because uh, we broke up out of college for whatever reason. So, uh, you know, uh, shenanigans ensued where (laughs) she found somebody, a hot, sexy Spanish doctor. But we broke up. And then uh, when I moved to New York, we just caught up because she was married with kids. I didn't have any courage, so I wound up being a writer at an ad agency out of college. Mm -hmm. So that was a good, secure, you kind of got talent, but it's different. Did you do anything in college geared towards copywriting? I had a a degree in communications. Oh, okay, okay. But that'll be, that's kind of a weird story in and of itself, but I'll come right back to that. But so (laughs) she, 
she was in marketing and now I was an actor and a comedian in New York City. So it was weird. The whole time we knew each other, she was fearless, right. had a record deal. I was totally scared of everything. And then, you know, like, I don't know, when we were like 30, we probably had dinner and all of a sudden I was doing this thing. And then she was, mar- you know, she was just in marketing with kids and all that. So, but yeah. the advertising so you job. win. I, well, do I? She she had a 401k Work plan. Do. I don't know. I don't know if I win. It looks good on paper sometimes. But the advertising thing, I had a degree in communications, and I was very funny even then, I thought. And I was a decent writer. I just didn't know any. I didn't have any technique. A buddy of mine worked at an ad agency in Memphis. I just called this woman every day for three months. And finally, just to get me off her back, she said, come meet me. And don't call me anymore. So I went and talked to her, and uh, she was VP at the SAD agency, but she was in account management, which is more the business side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I told her I was a writer. And she goes, oh, you're not even in the right department. The, you know, why don't you just go? And she, so she set me up with a meeting with the head of the creative department. And then I went and met with him, and he said, well, where's your portfolio? And I didn't even know I needed a portfolio. So I didn't. I just lied and said, oh, I brought it last time, but I didn't know. He's like, well, uh, you know what? If, if she sent you over here, she must see something in you. So they let me work for a few weeks, and I would just go to office to office, and I would do an idea, and they would give me a note, and then I would go to the other office, and that would each time it would get a little better. I just kind of BSed my way through it. And then my first year, uh, I was a writer, and then I also gave tennis lessons in Memphis and lived with my <laughs> college roommates. And But again, no desire to uh, to perform. I mean, uh, of course I would have loved to have performed, but I didn't even know, what does that even look like? I mean, really? Because in Memphis, you know, sometimes I say, like, if you like, if you like stand-up and you live in Memphis, it's like, I mean, it's cool, but, like, what does that even look like? But if you live in L.A., you know what it looks like because people are living professionally as comedians and there's a, a thing. Like, I knew I didn't want to be kind of a regional, in my car all the time person. And even <laughs> to do that, I would have had to invest five to 10 years, because back then you had to be good. Back then it wasn't like, okay, we'll do a social media following and we'll figure out how right. to get you good. You just had to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until you were deemed worthy. And where you came up, it, I'm just guessing here, it wasn't you know, a lot of outlets for that? They had a club in Memphis, and it's kind of funny. It's been a routine ritual. There's always been a one club in Memphis, at least, and it always goes out of business after a period of time. <laughs> there was one club. And I remember they had to MC, but you know, again, the the hard thing is, is that like in New York, I can work on my set. I can keep doing my act and then just, you know, put in new pieces in and out. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're in Memphis, they all know your act. If you're going up five, six times a week, they're going to know your act. I mean, I remember to this day, the club host of the club that I would go to when I was Mm -hmm. in my 20s. And the the joke was always, any Southern Baptist here? Nice. How's that liquor going down? And that was the bit. And he did it every time. And mm-hmm. so you just kind of know people's acts. So you, it's yeah. hard to do it. Whereas with the tourist influx here, I feel pretty comfortable. Like I can always front load, back load, and then put new stuff in the middle. I've yeah. never really been, I've always been envious of those comics that, you know, can just go up and bomb and know they don't have to bomb. You know what I mean? Like they know they've right, got an act right. and they're just doing it. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it's always so competitive to get a spot. Or you'd feel bad. Like if I did your show, I know to some degree I could say, well, it's not that high pressure. I know you're not going to get mad at me, but I want to do well in your show. I don't want you to feel like, oh, Griggs, last time, whoa, that was a stinky pile of poo poo. You know? So I think <laughs> oh, that. Boy, do you know how I speak? <laughs> 
it took a while for me to figure out that I wanted, the path for me was to get to New York at some point. Mm. Uh, and even then, it was probably just as much about advertising as it was anything else. What led you to New York? Was it the advertising that got you to come here? I was in Memphis. I probably would have stayed there forever, just out of fear. I worked at an ad agency. It got bought out by an ad agency in Columbus, Ohio. And then they got rid of uh, most of the accounts except a couple. I was in my 20s. And ultimately, I was running the office. So, like, I'm running the office of an ad agency, whether, you know, in Memphis. So, I'm running around. Again, dated the mayor of Ritoka, Tennessee's daughter, under 1,000 population. I was cool. Now, I'm, I'm running an ad agency in 20s. Mm-hmm. I think I'm the best. So, I probably never would have left. Eventually, they closed down that office and they moved it to, they had a Cincinnati office. And they were like, you know, you're either going to have to move to Cincinnati, which is what we want you to do to work on Procter and Gamble, which is actually kind of a big deal, yeah. or uh, we're just going to let you go. And so I moved to Cincinnati just because of, I didn't want to get laid off. Right. And I reluctantly did that. And then the weirdest thing happened. Just the moment the plane landed in Cincinnati, I kind of knew two things. I knew that I'm not going to live in Cincinnati very long, but I knew that I would never, I wasn't going to go back to Memphis. Then it became kind of this thing where I just wanted to get to um, New York. I wound up getting on an account eventually, uh, Wendy's. I worked on Wendy's national stuff, but we had an office. They had an office in New York, Mm -hmm. so I just fell in love with it. You know, company Mm -hmm. card, going to New York probably once every eight weeks or something. And I'm like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And that was it. And then eventually I got to New York, and I was working on the military at the time, which was weird because I've never been in the military. Mm -hmm. But we worked in the Pentagon and all that jazz, and... I started taking Second City classes in New York really early. Like maybe even the first week I got here, I remember signing up pretty quick because I love that. Mm-hmm. And then Second City obviously left New York, and now they're coming back, weirdly enough. But I was lucky enough to go through their program. When 9-11 happened, I, like a lot of people, my brain chemistry changed. So I didn't—it wasn't like I said to myself the day after that, oh, I'm going to change my whole life. I just knew that I loved comedy mm-hmm. and this New York had comedy. So I would just be the fun old guy in the old folks home and have stories. And I knew that I could be around some of the best comedians in the world. And that seemed cool. So I started taking a stand-up class at Stand Up New York and I just incrementally decided, you know, I'm either going to try to find a way to do all of this or I'm going to slowly shift over to performing over time. Mm-hmm. Because I was supposed to be in the Pentagon the day after 9-11. Our boss was uh, this lady admiral who uh, I used to have a crush on. I don't know if I'm supposed <laughs> to say that, but I, I did. And um, Declassified by the Declassified point. by now. But I, ha- I did. I had a security clearance, which was pretty cool. Anyway, so yeah, so when that happened, I don't know. It just made me think life is short and all that. So I just kind of started doing it. And I wound up barking in Times Square you know, hey, here's a show. Here's a come see huh? a comedy show. No, this one was. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the. I room. just have so many people. It's who, close who to have ha. stories of yeah. No, we competed with Ha, <laughs> and there was Al Franken had a club back then, and so what would happen is there would be legit beefs where like you would have somebody over and someone from Ha would try to snatch the person away from you mm-hmm. and take them, and you would almost get into fights, you know. But I was thinking like you know. I was making six figures before all this, and I'm happy. So I must be doing something that I want to do. So uh, I had a 401k. I was making a ton of money. And here I am, you know, just dealing with fools. There's a lot of fools in this business back then and now. <laughs> but I was happy because I felt like, 
I get to get on stage. And I had this math in my head because I'd seen Jay Leno on Inside the Actor's Studio. One of the actors asked, you know, how do you become a stand-up? And he said, uh, I think he said some version of like, you have to do it four times a week in front of strangers or more and for four years. And then you've graduated comedy college. So this place I barked, they did, uh, I think they did two shows on Friday, two shows on Saturday. So that was my four. And then I could do an open mic or two. I was in improv enough at that point to where I could talk someone and to let me host their improv show, but I get to do five minutes up front. Or right. I, I'm. I feel like, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I first met you as part of an improv troupe that used to do our show, but I don't believe you were doing stand up at that point. I think it was shortly thereafter. Is, is I think it was accurate? shortly thereafter. I learned a weird improv lesson that I teach improv now, and so I tell students this story. We were in Second City. There, there was a few of us that were somewhat enamored by this uh, quiet, tall Irishman named Walter, whom you know. <laughs> so the three of us, we liked Walter, and we wanted to do a show built around Walter. And so the whole show was designed to make Walter have fun. <laughs> and it was called All Things Walter. And we would do great. I mean, I thought improv was easy, if I'm being honest. I'm like, I don't know, man. We're doing bars and we're killing. Like, we're doing great. And it was because, though, in improv, there's a thing like the group mind is stronger than the individual. Mm-hmm. We just had a good group mind and we were funny. And I, I was on so many teams after that that were horrible. And it, I never, oh, it's because we were just all on the same show. Like we were all selflessly serving one thing and we were all so funny. But I've been on plenty of improv teams where you have several funny people, but it's a train wreck because people are just, you know, fighting to be funny or trying to be clever right. instead of working together and all right. that. And, and, and then our, I- our team did your show back in the day when you were doing No Name and a Bag of Chips in uh, Times Square. The legendary little black box theater from hell. Where like you would invite people and I'm like, look, you're going to think... It's dangerous. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Just It'll be cool. And you'll get some cookies, and you used to have those big-ass stag beers or something. I don't know. Oh, cold 45, maybe, or something. And I remember it was a guy on my team, Pete LePage. I wasn't a big drinker. And then you come to New York, and all of a sudden, people drink all the time. But I just remember, I would always drink your malt liquor, and Pete, like, hey, settle down, Griggs. This is not a Coors Light you're drinking. <laughs> you might want to relax on it, buddy. <laughs> and you know, it's funny, it's another improv thing. Like, Pete LePage is one of my closest friends now, but we were all taking classes with Walter, and mm-hmm. we all liked Walter. And I don't even think Pete and I really liked each other. It was almost like cats. Well, I guess if Walter has you here, I guess we'll stay, to, you know. But now, uh-huh. you know, we're really close friends, and we've written a couple of TV pilots together but improv oh, nice. basically brought us into that world you guys just seem to genuinely enjoy spending time together you know mm-hmm. and, and doing the thing together at least when you were on stage you know there's a thing in improv a line that says treat your scene partner like a poet or a genius and i think that was easy for us because we all thought each other were pretty cool in our own different way mm-hmm. so there wasn't that that heavy drag. We liked being around each other off stage, and we liked, were kind of delighted by each other on stage. And we just were lucky. I didn't know that it was so complicated. I've been in two great improv groups, and it was All Things Walter, and then it's been my current group, the Baldwins. But in between that was just a litany of, ugh, you know, just this is hard. It's miserable. It really just takes one or two people that don't like other people in the group or that don't respect other people in the group. And it kind of falls apart because it's a group art form. 
Unless, you know, like I went through Upright Citizens Brigade and I learned Game of the Scene and I do love it, but it's a little bit more like calculus. It's a lot to learn. (laughs) And then that can lead to a competitive nature, which I understand if you're all good at game. I always tell people like you either need to learn how to celebrate people or you need to get great at game Mm -hmm. or you might have to be genuinely funny. But (laughs) but how many people are really, you know, there are not that many people that are genuinely funny, not really. Or if you took like out of a hundred people, how many people you think are actually funny? Just like sitting around a table like this and mm-hmm. people are walking down the street and they could be funny. And then whatever <laughs> that number is, how many of them would do the 10,000 hours of the grind right. to be able to translate? How do you translate spontaneity to the stage? I like improv because people that are so not funny in any facet of the word, not in life, not in relationships, they're just not funny. They can get laughs in improv just by being present and yeah. celebrating moments on stage. That's such a cool life-affirming thing. You know, I'm a Gemini, so I also have the darkness in me, and I do enjoy people trying to be funny, doing stand-up, and failing. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I like it. And I also like it when they succeed. If they can do it, I'm certainly a fan of the art form. But, um, you know, stand-up is Darwinism. And improv is like this, you know, holistic kind of a human experience that can be really cool, life-affirming, really. People who are in the game of improv for a length of time sometimes come across as being happier folks than folks in the stand-up game for a length of time. Well, you know, I was talking, because I've talked about Centralia, and again, for people, if they're listening to this, they were just, and they're still around. They used to be Burn Manhattan, and they were kind of this legendary improv group that was just killing it in Manhattan. But there were three of them, primarily, and Eric and I know all three of them, and they were my teachers, and I kind of had this... Meg Ryan moment where I'm watching them and they're happy. And I kind of had this, I'll have what they're having with improv. And I I would study other styles, but I would always go back to, there's a bliss about those three dudes. And there's a celebratory nature of them on stage. It's funny now because now two out of the three of them, we all teach at a place called The Pit, you know, in New York, uh, the People's Improv Theater. And they're just as happy. And it's real. It's not fake. It's not a cult. It's just, a, they're just happy. And I do think there's a happiness to being able to, like, if you can bring yourself on stage and self-actualize it and just kind of bring art on stage. And it doesn't matter how old you are, really. I think that that's cool. I think a lot of people that do improv, there's a point to where it becomes therapy and they mm-hmm. get scared. And so they start developing technique to get around the therapy part of it. But then they get bummed out because they're kind of like a banjo with two strings. They really only got <laughs> a couple things that they can do on stage. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like those three could do anything. And my favorite improvisers, I feel like they're more malleable. They can do whatever the stage needs them to do as opposed to I do this one thing over and over. Right, right. Because because then you get into a thing, whether you're an audience person or whether you're uh, working alongside of them, you kind of start to wait. It's like, okay, where is this trick going to come out? You know, yeah. you know it's going to happen at some point in the evening. And so you're almost anticipating that more than being present, sure. you know? And there, and it's cool. Like, I mean, there's short form and long form, and I love. I we teach long form, but I love short form. You know, I love to do it. I did it for a minute on a TV show that Kelsey Grammer produced, so I, I'm decent at it. But I just think they're different. I think when I'm doing short form, it's a little bit more of the stand up in me. I'm just being funny as fast as I can. Whereas when I do improv, I'm really just about connecting with people and finding discovery, and then that becomes funny at the time. When you first stepped into the stand-up ring, uh, what did you find? I was so excited to finally know that when I died, this would not be a regret. 
especially when I started taking that class. Which, which class? I took a class at Stand Up New York. Mary Domino was my teacher. She's a wonderful teacher. And really just the perfect, you really couldn't ask for anybody else because she's very New York mm-hmm. and she's yeah. very nice at the same time. That's a yeah. good combination for, you know, when you're scared and you're just doing it for the first time. And I did it and I thought, oh, cool. I'm just, I know that, you know, I'm going to do this. And then what I did, which is very uncharacteristic of me, but I'm a fan of it. I tell students now to do this. You're going to have to put in the time regardless. So you beating yourself up is pointless. There's going to be plenty of people in stand up that are going to want to tell you why you're not enough. Why don't you give yourself a break and you check in at whatever intervals. I like to do a kind of a check-in after six months, but mm-hmm. then at the end of the year, I would check in. And as long as I was happy and I was better, then I would go, cool, I'm going to do this another year. Uh, that's what I did. And I would, I would always be getting better. I was super excited. I even knew that this is something I wanted to do because, you know, this is the funny thing. Well, now we go back to the Pentecostal thing because in that whole world, you know, God is taking the clay and making it a diamond and all that. So pressure is a good thing. That's probably one of the good wiring things I got out of all that. So I've always looked at something. Of course, you're going to bomb. If you're not bombing, you're not really a comic. You're not trying. You're not trying. You're not doing anything. It's your first year. What am I going to do? Not bomb? So I never equated doing poorly as something I should really, you know, flagellate myself for. Mm -hmm. Now, if I did poorly three times in a row, then I would get upset. But most of the time, because I had a few years in improv, I never bombed that hard because my first year I could do act outs and I would do a lot of character stuff and I would Mm -hmm. do impressions. So I had a little bit of a cheat code, to be honest, on some of it. I would always do all right. And then I would write jokes and some of them would work and some of them wouldn't. At the end of my first year, I was talking to a, a comic that we're still friends today and they were sort of pointing out that I was like, you need to pick a lane. Let's write more jokes and do less funny. I'm playing this character and Mm -hmm. it's working. I kind of scrapped half my act and I just kept doing that. And then I've always just been a bit of a tinkerer. You used to do an impression of your uncle, did you not? I did. I still sometimes do my uncle. Rest in peace, Uncle Bill passed Mm, away a couple years ago. But Uncle Bill was always uh, obsessed with Elvis and had a pompadour and pop-up collars and he had a zip-up onesie and he would always be dancing to music that only he heard and everything. <laughs> like, uh, Christopher, I'm going to tell you about life. You don't know anything about life. Uncle Bill's lived things. I've dated debutantes and whores. And, you know, he would just tell me all these accolades and then just keep telling me I didn't understand about life. But Uncle <laughs> Bill was always pretty successful on stage. People like Uncle Bill. I kind of had a bunch of Uncle Bill stuff and then I just kind of stopped doing it. And then when he passed away, I was the executor of his will. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a bunch of new Uncle Bill stuff and people <laughs> seemed to like that because he lived on the border of Texas and Mexico because mm-hmm. he wanted to uh, have access to affordable dental care. So he was kind of this person that just wrote himself. Like he's just bigger than life. Uh, yeah, and, you always came across that way in your act. Yeah, you know? he was just a fun dude. Really, really fun guy. I did a lot of Clinton, I remember, because that always crushed all the mm-hmm. time. and. My twin sister, I would do. I would do my mom sometimes. Uh, I did Chris Rock back then, which I don't think you could do Chris Rock. I couldn't do Chris Rock now, but I did it back then. And uh, that <laughs> was all right. That one. And I would do this hillbilly character that was kind of deliverance-ish. I did a lot of that kind of thing. But then eventually I just had to get better at writing jokes. And then I did. You know, And each year I would get better and better. It's all like a lot of venues. You were doing, just doing the work of God, really, because you would put people on that stage and... There was never like a velvet rope hierarchy thing with you, which I think we all appreciated. To me, that's what I wish. I mean, you wish everything was like that in New York, because really, 
most performance opportunities, there's always a string behind it. The audience may not see it, but it could be anything from you've got certain representation or you're opening for this person or mm-hmm. you have your show and you're swapping spots with that show. It's a very weird thing. And what was cool with you was that it always felt very New York, that show. <laughs> um, that makes me feel good. It, it's totally. Not, it's not a stated goal, but I, I'm happy when that's a byproduct of it. It's like what I was saying about why I like the blues players in Memphis. They do it for the love of the game. Like mm-hmm. you weren't doing that show to get someone from Time Out, uh, New York Times to come watch you. It was all just about fun and weird mm-hmm. and well, you know what? bringing okay. talent to stage. What we always tried to do is, yes, we wanted people who were talented there, but we also tried to honor the people who took their craft, whatever it was. You know, I mean, you know, we had all different types of performers there, not just comics, but the people who were really working at the craft, who were putting in the time, you know, like they might not be as polished as so-and-so, but they're going to get there because they're putting in that kind of time. And it's it's hard to find that kind of stage time, you know, it. There's so many open mics in New York Bay that, as I always like to say, all open mics are not created equal. <laughs> and and that's why I actually always used to bristle when people would clumsily refer to us as an open mic. No, no, no. You know, you get invited because we like your work. Or somebody else said, this guy is good. And that, that's kind of how we landed where we landed. And you were but, getting some, I mean, you were getting good comics and things on the show. You're getting good improv teams like, you know, I mean, Carmen Lynch and uh, Liz Mealy and people yeah. like that that are just fantastic comedians. And then they would keep doing this show. And that's what's funny is I think if you, I think a lot of people, even before the pandemic or even before social media got super popular, there's a hypocrisy with a lot of places that put people on stage, whether they're bar shows or clubs or whatever, where their ingredient in the beginning is you have to put in the time. But then when people put in the time, they don't respect that. And then they go right back to people that they can get to find new people. You got to put in the time because that means I have a power dynamic over you because you have to do what I tell you to do because you've got to put in the time. And then you put in the time. And unless there's some reason that you can help them, that doesn't matter. And I always felt like with that show, it, to me, it's what that cycle should be. It's people that you would give people opportunities that you thought warranted it. I remember it's very rare that I would see someone do your show where I was like, does that person cut your yard? Like, why is that person? And I have that experience in other places. Like, do you do their social media for them? Like, how did you get this stage time? Yeah, yeah. And you, even when it wasn't great, you knew, oh, okay, I see my, I see what you see in that person. And, or it was weird, which I also respected. You kind of had a weird vibe. And sometimes it was just about the vibe, which is also cool. But then when people would get, you know, good or successful and stuff, you would still want them to come back, you know, mm-hmm. and, and do that. And I always felt like for me, especially as I started doing more stuff, particularly like with improv, because I don't always just want to go and do a, you know, an improv show anymore because I just have, I've done so much of it, but I would always want to go back and do your show. And I think a lot of people are like that, like, oh, we're always going to go back and do that show. I wish more were like that. Or even now you do a lot of stuff where it feels transactional. You do this for me and I'm going to do that for you. And and then half the time I'm like, I don't run a room, man. I don't know what you want me for me, but I can I can do your show and people will laugh. I know that. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, which it really shouldn't be a beyond that. It should just be, especially, I think it's just a lot of shows where they would rather just everybody bomb, but they have that transactional component rather uh, than actually just book a great show. Especially early on, you know, a lot of times, you know, someone would hear about our show and, you know, Never heard of them, which is fine. I don't know everybody by any stretch, but, you know, someone come up and like, 
hey, you know, I got a show. I, I, I'll give you a spot on my show if you, you let me do your show. And like, well, first of all, thank you for the offer, but that's your show and it's got your name on it. I know you've never seen me perform. I could suck. You might want to think about who you're going to attach your name to. Now, as far as doing my show, why don't you send me a clip? It's bizarre, right? I mean, I've had people ask me, would you come and speak at this thing about stand-up or would you come and do this thing about stand-up? And I'm like, you've never seen me perform. It's like the world with stand-up is either mixed between people that know that you're good and won't let you out of the won't let you out of the ceiling anyway, or mm. people that don't even know who you are, but you've got a certain heat in an area mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they just they want to be your buddy. You can't it's hard to respect either one of those, really. I agree. It it definitely makes it a little uncomfortable and I, I, I try to avoid those games. I mean, you know, there's always that situation where it's like, well, I really want to do this show or whatever. But I mean, it, it, it's not worth it because I did no money. <laughs> there's no, no real money involved doing this for love in, and... in my world. So, And then you get to a place where you can make some money, but you know, you have to get on, on the road. So even now, I just kind of really want stand-up income to be part of my, my monthly pie. So that means I got to be on the road more. So I've been, you know, just doing more road gigs. Do you like being on the road? You know, it's weird. I... Don't know that I love being on the road in the day. It's almost like going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to find out what does the Pittsburgh Funny Bone like at 8.30. Oh, they like something different at 10.30 versus 8.30. I felt like, okay, this is educational and it's fun. A bit of a comedy laugh. But I don't know that I love being in the road because I really love being in New York. Mm -hmm. But for some reason... I've had a really good relationship with it coming out of the pandemic. I really like it because I get to do longer sets. I've tried to remove myself from certain mousetrap situations Mm -hmm. with stuff and just, you know, uh, it takes me a while, but just finally building my own thing. You know, what what am I about? What am I doing? And and because I think you're going to have to do more digital work if you want to make it now. And I've tried to do more of that and build a social media following. And I've been trying to just for my mental health, work with people that want to work with me. And that's mm-hmm. what's nice about New York is that there's a lot of things to do in New York. And the path that I followed, which was, you know, you had to get in clubs, you do it five or 10 years, and you write your pilot and all that, and you have to be able to play anywhere. I think it's a great model. Uh, I could argue that we should go back to that model, but we're <laughs> never going to go back to that model. So since we're not going to go back to that model, then that idea of institutional comedy is dying. Yeah. Uh, so... There used to just be so many situations for people, but it was a small number of situations. So the the situations had power, but right. now not just as a standup, but also as an actor. You know, maybe you had a smaller number of casting people. Now there's infinite number of casting people. Yeah, and it, so you know, so three, much content but there's forty, by, and then you can't meet them unless you pay to play. And there's just so many different things that go on with all that. I think this idea of trying to just keep building on being good and then try to gravitate to people that want to work with me and build out from that has become more interesting to me. And, you know, I do road work. And especially now that I headline more, I think it's fun because, you know, you can just legitimately show off and show that you're at a really high level and you get paid and it's cool. There's just enough opportunities that you can sort of find your own things. I've never been in New York where there's been as many shows that are going on right now. Mm -hmm. There's so many shows. Even though we lost clubs, like, it was a bummer because, you know, I loved doing Dangerfields before Mm -hmm. the pandemic. And I loved doing Creek in a Cave before the pandemic. 
yeah, but there's there's new places are popping up, and mm. there are places there. There's enough where you can you know you got to get your spots each week, but you can do that without necessarily having to you know sell your blood at the bank and all <laughs> right, that. Right, right. Probably more opportunities at the moment for for getting that I think so. time. At and least by the way, I'm a fan of not being above doing things. You know, like I said, mm-hmm. I bark in Times Square for three and a half years. Like I'm not above doing things. I just think that there's a point to where if people, like when you're clearly have put your 10,000 hours in mm-hmm. and they still want you to jump through hoops and things, it's just silly. And I don't even mean jump hoops to use you. I just mean jump hoops to even look at your work. No, I, I understand. I understand. Nobody it's... owes you using you. But I do think there's a time when you know certain people that they might owe you a legit look. You, you want to have some sort of a payoff for having put in all the work to have the resume that you have. Sure. You know. And there's also going to be people that are going to have your back. And you're, you know what? It's never going to be who you think. Like, there, there's this guy, you know, he booked two clubs. He's always brought me in. Everywhere this person goes, they always have had my back. Mm-hmm. They just liked my work, and they didn't make me do anything other than say thank you. You know, even to this day, I would do anything for that person. Because I also know it's fair. You know, I know that this is legitimate. It's not like they didn't give me anything and I didn't give them anything. And Because I feel this now. Like there are comics in the city that I actively try to help when I can because I see something in them. And I think, you know, you need that. You need those people that say, hey, you've got something. And I I have also, because we're kind of talking about the negative, but on the positive, I've been very blessed to have people that have always sort of like been very affirmative about, hey, you do something that others don't do, and there's something unique and fun about what you do. And even after the pandemic, I remember doing a gig where a comic, we had done a gig right before the pandemic, and they go, Griggs, I can't believe it. I think you took it up a notch. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I have. And it's so nice when someone sees that. Yeah. Because when you're really good, sometimes people don't see like, oh, you're you're really good. Now you're really really good, and right. you're just kicking it up right. a total another. And also, I mean, let's be honest. You know, no matter how nice a person you are, by and large, I don't want to make too broad a generalization, but a high percentage of comics, let's say, is just our first response is not to give you a meaningful compliment. It's like you know, it's it's more like assessing yourself in the situation, you know, in the context, in the firmament or whatever. And that's why I always have a a great love of performers who are generous like that. And some of the people that you mentioned, you know, like Liz Mealy, Carmen Lynch, Leanne Lord is like that. Folks who will, will let you know when you're doing good work. People who are just fans of comedy and are not so into their own head that they can't express praise for other people's work. Yeah, that I never I totally know that that is a real thing and I I've never 100% got it because we're not competing. I'm not competing with somebody who got passed at the cellar or somebody that did a thing. I'm not. And when I really look back and I think about people that were very influential to me when I was going through and not always the kind words. Sometimes like you could work on this. You know, I think about people like uh, Lori Kilmartin Oh, yeah. And Ted Alexandro and Mm -hmm. uh, Mark Riccadonna, they're talented. And that's my generalization is that I found when I really look back on a lot of the people that have not been afraid to talk about it in a real way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And everything, I don't want to talk about your comedy all the time, but I just mean like, hey, it's good that you're in this. 
you're good in this. You should right. keep doing this. Those people I've generally found to be talented, not always even stand-ups. I have found, you know, like certain club owners or bookers, and I've also found them to be talented people mm-hmm. and be very mm-hmm. successful in their field. Right. And some of the people that would never give me anything, I don't know that I would, you know, gun to head, I don't know that I would say that they were talented. And I don't even mean that from my perspective. I just mean that from a general perspective in the business. I remember once um, I was at Stand Up York and George Wallace was there. I wasn't even supposed to be on the show, but I'm talking to George Wallace and we're talking about Memphis and it's just cool because I live in the area. So sometimes I pop in and yeah. uh, and so I just popped in to get a drink. And then uh, George Wallace went up and everybody was going crazy, crazy. I don't know how it happened, but somehow somebody told me I could follow. Go, oh, you want to go up and follow George Wallace? I don't think people wanted to follow him, to be honest. And I'm like, I would love to follow him. And I did, and I had a really, really good set. And then nice. afterwards, he was so kind to me about that. And everyone was actually not, you know, a few people were actually, I find that once you get up to a certain point with stand-up, a lot of people are talented. So what are we doing? You know, if you've been doing this for a while and you are consistently, you know, you're getting paid there's something about you that's probably working. Yeah. And so it's always, it's just silly and it's totally unhealthy for people. Like there's people that, uh, well, they're not my cup of tea, but I totally get why people like them. Right. It's very few people that I have a genuine kind of, you suck. At the end of the day, if you reach a certain point, reach a certain level and sustain that, yeah, you know, it is possible if you're working hard to have a moment, but if you have more than a moment, you're in the game for a length of time at a certain level, you've got some skills. Whether or not it's your, like you say, cup of tea or whatever, it's like you're doing something that somebody likes and you got to, at the very least, respect that. And I think if you get to that level, you may be a little bit more wired to get that. I think because it is such a solitary pursuit, I think it's hard for people, especially because, let's be honest, a lot of people get into that game uh, because they're coming from a damaged place or whatever. You know, it's hard to be solitary like that and not have a bit of, like, comparing yourself to others. And I think that's where where some people get lost because it means you're focused in the wrong place. It's also silly because, like, I even look around. I can't think of anybody that I see on stage. They remind me of me. For better, for worse. And the people that have been influential to me, they're not even on my, they're not nearly, they don't, I, we don't do anything alike. Like Chris Rock was a huge influence on me. Uh, Robin Williams was a huge influence on me. Bernie Mac was a huge influence on me. Wanda Sykes later on became kind of an influence on me because being from the South and she really knew how to broaden her story in a way that where she was Southern, but also had an interesting worldview. So there's mm-hmm. lots of those people, but I don't know. I don't do anything like them. I don't even know who... Like people ask me, like, who would I be? And I'm like, I don't know. Like maybe if John Stewart were Southern, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't feel like we're doing different stuff. And I yeah. actively try to talk about things that I don't hear in clubs and I don't hear all the time because otherwise I just get bored with it. At least for me, if I'm going to talk about watching porn, I'm just not as a person closely associated with enough. Like, hey, man, porn's cool. I got nothing problem with it, but I'm not that into it that I want to talk about it on stage all the time. <laughs> You know, so a lot of times, especially people will be, do you worry about people stealing your jokes? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if you stole my joke, I just feel like half the time it's not that great a joke. <laughs> right, right. It's certainly not, you know, like I have stuff about being a, a teenager on a competitive Bible quiz team in the South. Like, why would you want to take that joke? But if I sat around and talked about people messing up my name on a Starbucks cup, 
well, cool, take it. I should have it taken away from me because <laughs> anybody can do that joke. You were no longer in the advertising game? Yeah, I got out a long time ago. What led to that choice? I don't know if it was a choice as much as, look, this has helped me as a person and it's hurt me in my career. I spent a lot of time in my 20s trying to find a certain measure of mental health and I found it and I could not ever just give myself over to oh, I'm just going to do stand-up all the time. because mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. So I've always kept improv in my life because I thought it was mentally healthy. And I also thought that, you know, if I did improv and I did acting and I did stand-up, then even if one of them was abusing me, somebody else would love me. So mm-hmm. I kind of broadened it out. So then it just became about finances. I just right. slowly each year, you know, like you point your boat in a direction and eventually, oh, how did I get here? It's just like a day at a time. Mm-hmm. You make choices that are more based on this is, you know, fake it till you make it and stuff like that. I just slowly wound up being able to make the money where I didn't have to do it. And then even though I had no desire to do it, somebody was moving to LA and they wanted me to teach their improv class at the pit. And I did it. It felt like I was of service in some weird way. And Mm -hmm. that made me feel healthier. And so I thought, you know, this is not going to make everybody happy. And it certainly hurt me in places, but I like my life. I was in a horror film that just wrapped, they're going to put it out. And then I've got You know, I teach at an acting conservatory in New York, improv, and I teach improv at the pit. And then I do some road gigs during the month. And, you know, the strikes kind of bum me out because you can't really audition for anything. But I don't know, you know, I mean, like every blue moon, I know people in marketing, advertising stuff, and they'll say, would you do this one thing for me? And I will if I'm broke. But I've also gotten hired just to write jokes for commercials and stuff like that Mm -hmm. for ad agencies. And I'm like, that's cool. You were in that long enough that you have people sometimes reach out to you for freelance I stuff, I feel right? like I eventually have developed a bit of a pull. You know, like you're always pushing, pushing, pushing. Mm-hmm. And it's rare for a month to go by where there's not a pull for someone. You know, whether it's uh, would you come out and do stand-up in Jackson, Tennessee or Dallas or something or... Would you do this corporate seminar where you talk about like advertising to comedy or and do an improv workshop or something? It seems like something happens. I, it took me a while to be comfortable because I was never even comfortable. Like people say now, like I'm a stand-up comedian and it's everything in me to be like, no, you're not. Like you're not <laughs> yet. It took me a while to say that I was an actor and I was booking stuff mm-hmm. and I felt like, mm, I don't know. Maybe it's a hat trick. You're really good at improv and it's maybe a hat trick. And then eventually I'm like, I don't know. I'm a good actor. And so this has all been maybe recent, maybe in the last five or six years, where I've just gotten really comfortable with this idea that I do it. People seem to like it. People like it that don't have any skin in the game of making me fail. Like there's been things where you may not get something, but I know it's not got nothing to do with me. And also actors just in general, because I've been on the other side casting commercials and stuff. It's very rarely about you. I mean, I know it's easy for me to say, don't take it personally. I like that Brian Craniston thing in his book where he said, you know, just start looking at auditions like gigs. You're just going in and performing for four or five people and then you leave. Now, I think with comedic acting, it's different because you're either good at comedic acting or you're not. There's just a music that only certain people can hear. The degree of difficulty with comedy is just harder. I, I agree. Where are you at right now? You're teaching, you're doing improv, and you're doing stand-up and uh, the occasional freelance gig and, and acting, and this is combined, this is, is making it work? Yeah, 
was making it work. And then like everything in New York, you're always looking for the hustle. I rented out a desk in my living room for a month because a director needed a quiet space to edit their film. <laughs> but I'm always looking out for things. And believe me, it's not a great retirement plan. <laughs> I have money, but I don't know how anybody retires, to be honest with you. Yeah, I like my life. It's good. And I always tell people, because you never know, somebody will say, what's your next stand-up move? And I'm like, well, I, if I were reoccurring on CSI Alabama, I would be headlining <laughs> all around the world and everybody would think I'm great. The world's changed now. I have material. I have a couple of pilot scripts I've written. I've got a short film script. I've got a digital web series that we were going to start right before the mm -hmm. strike and we can't do it. I've easily got an hour of great. I could do an hour and it would be great. Then the question becomes like, do you hold on to it? Because I when I was doing it, it was always this idea that, you, you know, every standup has like one a great hour in them, even though there's been anomalies like Louie and Chris Rock that have had obviously a lot more than one hour. But I need to do that. So I need to do my hour before uh, and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's lots, of, I have lots of things and, and I still feel like I'm as good as I've ever been as far as writing. And then the strike has just been a bummer, although it needs to happen. I understand yeah. why the strike's happening because if you don't really make streaming companies figure out the algorithms of how you monetize it and how you pay people, they're never going to do it. What is their incentive? So I feel like most of the strikes have always been about big moments in time where it was necessary because the world's changed mm -hmm. and the world's changed. They have to figure it out. And the AI situation is also something, it, it's better to work it out now. I support the strike. I totally get it. It's a bit of a bummer when you're in the pandemic and you can't audition and you're down, you can't audition. At least I have a few things that are in post-production that hopefully they'll come out soon and that'll be fun. Do you have any goals of things that you want to do that you haven't yet done? Yeah, obviously I want to do my hour. And like right now, and it might change. Right now my hour is I want to do, it's like based on an old Chris Rock thing where I would shoot the hour in New York and then I would go back and shoot the hour in probably Memphis or a place called Covington, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. I'd actually booked a theater in Covington, Tennessee to go out right before the pandemic. It's kind mm -hmm. of their version of like an Orpheum type theater. And uh, I would want to cut back and just see how different people react to that kind of material. My stuff is always a little bit singed in a Southern way of thinking, but it's a different kind of Southern way of thinking. Right, it's right. not, I don't think it's super progressive, but it's certainly not conservative. So it's somewhere in that world where you're trying to bridge the gap between I want everybody to find some love if they can. When we were, I was watching stuff back, you know, when Norman Lear was killing it, it was like, oh, it's everybody gets their shot. Everybody gets, yeah. everybody gets punched in the face. And I like that kind of comedy. <laughs> I definitely have a high appreciation for, for stuff where everybody gets to speak their piece, even if it's a, a piece you disagree with. Sure. But I've got a, I got a movie script that um, we were working on uh, right before the strike. And I've got a couple of pilots for TV that are kind of getting shopped around, you know, and you're doing that thing where you're answering questions and you're giving them notes and things. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like all of that's a lotto ticket. If it comes through, that's cool, but you can't count on it. But I think I'd love to, I don't know, maybe start, I hate this, but maybe have to figure out ways to fund my own stuff. And uh, I've always avoided it, but I think I'm going to have to consider that. Because I already know I could, I could do great stuff. It's just about not wanting to pay for it, some of it myself. Or to just have to, I think I could just easily fundraise for some things. I would say Because I don't do that. So I think it's sort of that idea. But that, I think that's probably what's going to be next. I think I'll probably wind up trying to find a level where there's a production company that I've done 
at least two projects with them, and we seem to get along well. So maybe we'll keep collaborating. Going forward, people want to see Chris Griggs. How can they find out what's going on with Chris Griggs? Where should they seek you out? Uh, well, you can always go to my website, chrisgriggscomedy.com, or my Instagram is at chrisgriggs, G-R-I-G-G-S, comedy, at chrisgriggscomedy. I post everything up there. It's also my uh, Facebook uh, at Chris Grease Comedy. You can always find out shows I'm doing in stand-up in New York, uh, which is kind of ongoing, or on the road. I'm a founding member of uh, an improv team called the Baldwins, and we're 15 years old this year. It's our anniversary. Mm. Baldwins, first Saturday every month at the People's Improv Theater at 730. The Awakenings is a show that I produce that I'm really a fan of. I, d- I produce a show with... Uh, Matt Vita and Harmon Leon called the 80s challenge where we show clips of 80s stuff and people have to perform off of it, which is kind of a fun show that we do at Young Ethel's in Brooklyn once a month. And just stand up stuff. It's around. So just be on my social media. That would be cool. Excellent. Thanks for choosing to spend some time with us today, Chris. Good catching up with you, man. You too. Always a pleasure. All right, that was our conversation with Chris Griggs, a very funny guy, a very cool guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. Ah, talking about things I need to work on, and there's like, I, I finish every interview by saying, I really enjoy talking with them. Well, I do. I enjoy talking with them. I enjoy feeling like we're talking over the ether here. Thank you for being here. Before we go out into that good night, a few orders of business. First of all, you need to know the important people who help make this show happen. None higher, more exalted than our grand poobah, our director, our producer, and chief audio engineer, the one and only Gary Hardcastle. Also, additional audio provided by Miles Mix Appeal Blue Spruce. Our production assistants, Stanley Recio and Jeremy Pueo. Intro and outro music written and performed by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. You know, in the conversation with Chris Griggs, we talked about a song that he had done a few years ago. And I went looking on YouTube. I found this on YouTube. It's a song he wrote called Wolverine, I Love You. Or I Love You, Wolverine. One of those. At any rate, we're going to play you a snatch of that, including some dialogue. There's a video for it. You can check it out on YouTube if you want. We thought it was kind of amusing, especially since we wound up chatting about it. That's what we're leaving you with. Until next time, this is Eric Vetter. I love you all. Hey, Wolvie, let's go to the park. It's beautiful. Storm's having a barbecue. No, man, I'm watching this. Just watching Oprah again all day? She's giving away cars or something. I love a car, man. Sick of riding a bus. Oh, God. Oh, oh. Miles' couch. See, a crime fighter would not do that. Oh, I don't feel good, man. Hey, you know what? When you first moved here and you answered that Craigslist ad, awesome. I get to live with Wolverine. He's got claws and you were bringing over mutant tail. Shing. You got two weeks to pull it together. Or I'll have to ask you to leave. Come on, Wolvie, fight for us. I was 12 when I first met this fellow. He was manly, even dressed in yellow. He liked to scowl and to drink, to fight and not think. And he became a hero of mine. 
He hailed from Canada so far He could hurt you while smoking a cigar Bad guys would stare in awe As he cut them with retractable claws I love you Wolverine I know you're not so mean I'll give you mascara And call you my bum I love you Wolverine You don't have to kill for me I wish we could be bros I'd show you Not everyone's a booty hole He heals if he ever gets caught his lid is really messed up He's short with back hair Colossus throws him through the air Flying free From his mutant face He really, really loves an angry rant And he really, really wants in Jean Grey's pants but Wolvie, be careful what you do Cause Cyclops has his one eye on you I love you Wolverine You know you're not so mean I'll give you mascara And call you my bum I love you Wolverine You don't, you don't have, have to, to kill for me we could be bros I show you Not everyone's a booty hole